Book Two, Chapter Two, Part One of History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume One, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Two, Chapter Two, Supereminence. Part One. When the Inquisition, as we have seen, arrogated to itself almost an equality with the sovereign, it necessarily assumed supremacy over all other bodies in the state. Spain had been won to the theory, assiduously taught by the medieval church, that the highest duty of the civil power was the maintenance of the faith in its purity and the extermination of heresy and heretics. The institution to which this duty was confided, therefore, enjoyed pre-eminence over all other departments of the state, and the latter were bound, whenever called upon, to lend it whatever aid was necessary. To refuse to assist it, to criticize it, or even to fail in demonstrations of due respect to those who performed its awful functions, were thus offenses to be punished at its pleasure. Allusion has already been made to the oath required of officials at the founding of the Inquisition, pledging obedience and assistance whenever an inquisitor came to a place to set up his tribunal. This was not enough, for feudalism still disputed jurisdiction with the crown, and the inquisitor was directed to summon the barons before him and make them take not only the popular oath, but one promising to allow the Inquisition free course in their lands, failing which they were to be prosecuted as rebels. As the tribunals became fixed in their several seats, when a new Inquisitor came, he brought royal letters, addressed to all officials from the visory down, commanding them, under penalty of five thousand florins, to lend him and his subordinates what aid was necessary, and to obey his mandates in making arrests and executing his sentences, and this was published in a formal proclamation with sound of trumpets by the vicery or other royal representative. This was not an empty formality, when, in 1516, the corregidor of Logroño, the comendador Barrientes, a knight of Santiago, ventured to assert that the familiars were not to be assisted in making an arrest, the inquisitors excommunicated him, and ordered him to seek the inquisitor-general and beg for pardon, which was granted only on condition of his appearance in a public auto de fe, after hearing mass as a penitent on his knees and holding a candle, after which he was to be absolved with stripes and the other humiliations inflicted on penitents. This was not merely an indignity, but a lasting mark of infamy, extending to the kindred and posterity. As though this were not sufficient, at a somewhat later period, the officials of all cities where tribunals were established were required to take an elaborate oath to the inquisitors, in which they swore to compel everyone within their jurisdiction to hold the Catholic faith, to persecute all heretics and their inherents, to seize and bring them before the Inquisition and to denounce them, to commit no public office to such persons, nor to any who were prohibited by the Inquisitors, nor to receive them in their families, 
to guard all the preeminences, privileges, exemptions, and immunities of the inquisitors, their officials, and familiars, to execute all sentences pronounced by the inquisitors, and to be obedient to God, to the Roman Church, and to the inquisitors and their successors. In this, the clause pledging observance of the privileges and exemptions of the officials was highly important, for, as we shall see hereafter, the privileges claimed by the Inquisition were the source of perpetual and irritating quarrels with the royal and local magistrates. It was an innovation of the middle of the sixteenth century, for Prince Philip, in a letter of December the second, fifteen fifty three, to the Tribunal of Valencia, says that he hears it requires the royal officials to swear to maintain the privileges, usages, and customs of the Inquisition. This, he says, is a novelty, and, as he does not approve of innovations, he asks what authority it has for such a requirement. To this, the answer was that every year, when the municipal officials enter upon their duties, they come and take such an oath, and the records showed that this had been observed for a hundred years without contradiction. This seems to have silenced his objections, and the formula became general. The Valencia Concordia, or Agreement of 1554, simply provides that the secular magistrates shall take the accustomed oath, and what that was is doubtless shown by the one taken, in 1626, by the Almotesen, or sealer of weights and measures, when he came to the Inquisition, and swore on the cross and the Gospels to observe the articles customarily read to the royal officials, and to guard the privileges of the holy office, and defend it with all his power. Even all this was insufficient to emphasize the universal subordination. At all autus de fe, which were attended by the highest in the land as well as by the lowest, and at the annual proclamation of the Edict of Faith, to which the whole population was summoned, a notary of the Inquisition held up a cross and addressed the people, Raise your hands, and let each one say that he swears by God and Santa Maria, and the cross and the words of the Holy Gospels, that he will favor and defend and aid the Holy Catholic Faith and the Holy Inquisition, its ministers and officials, and will manifest and make known each and every heretic, fautor, defender and receiver of heretics, and all disturbers and impeders of the holy office, and that he will not favor or help or conceal them, but as soon as he knows of them, he will denounce them to the inquisitors, and if he does otherwise, that God may treat him as those who knowingly perjure themselves. Let every one say, Amen. When the sovereign was present at an auto, this general oath did not suffice, and he took a special one. Thus, at the Valladolid auto of May 21st, 1559, the Inquisitor General Valdez administered to it the regent Juana, and at that of Madrid in 1632, Inquisitor General Zapata went to the window at which Philip IV was seated with a missal and a cross, on which the king swore to protect and defend the Catholic faith as long as he lived, and to aid and support the Inquisition, an oath which was then duly read aloud to the people. Thus the whole nation was bound, 
in the most solemn manner, to be obedient to the Inquisition, and to submit to what it might assert to be its privileges. How purely ministerial were the functions of the public officials in all that related to the Inquisition, even under Philip V, was illustrated when, at Barcelona, in an auto de fe of June 28, 1715, a bigamist named Medrano was sentenced to two hundred lashes to be inflicted on the 30th. On the 29th, word was sent to the public executioner to be ready to administer them, but the vicery, the Marquis of Castel Rodrigo, forbade the executioner to act until he should give permission, holding that no public punishment should be inflicted until he should be officially notified of the sentence. There were hasty conferences and debates, lasting till nearly midnight, and it was not until 7 a.m. of the 30th that the Marquis gave way and the sentence was executed. The tribunal reported the affair to the Suprema, which replied in the name of the king, diplomatically thanking the Marquis and rebuking his legal adviser, who was told that it was his duty and that of all officials to be obedient to the Inquisition. As a perpetual reminder of this subordination, there appears to have been kept in the royal chancellery the formula of a letter addressed to all viceries and captains-general. This recited the invaluable services of the Inquisition in clearing the land of infinite heretics and preserving it from the convulsions afflicting other nations, thus rendering its efficiency one of the chief concerns of the crown. Therefore, the king charges his representatives emphatically to honor and favor all inquisitors, officials, and familiars, giving them all the necessary aid for which they ask, and enforcing the observance of all the privileges and exemptions conceded to them by law, concordias, royal sedulas, use and custom, and in any other way, so that the holy office may have the full liberty and authority which it has always enjoyed, and which the king desires it to retain. A copy of this was sent to all the viceries in 1603, and, as I have chanced to find it again addressed in 1652, to the Duke of Montalto, then Viceroy of Valencia, it was presumably part of the regular instructions furnished to all who were appointed to these responsible positions. In the interminable conflicts through which the Inquisition established its enjoyment of the powers thus conferred, the inquisitor was armed, offensively and defensively, in a manner to give him every advantage. He could, at any moment, when involved in a struggle with either the secular or ecclesiastical authorities, disable his opponent with a sentence of excommunication, removable only by the holy office or the pope, and if this did not suffice, he could lay an interdict or even a cessatio ad divinis on cities until the people, deprived of the sacraments, would compel submission. It is true that, in 1533, the Suprema ordered that much discretion should be exercised in the use of this powerful weapon, on account of the indignation aroused by its abuse, but we shall have ample opportunity to see how recklessly it was employed habitually, without regard to the preliminary safeguards imposed by the canons. On the other hand, the inquisitor was practically immune. 
his antagonists were mostly secular authorities who had no such weapons in their armories and when he chanced to quarrel with a prelate he usually took care to be the first to fulminate an excommunication and then unconcernedly disregarded the counter-censures as uttered by one disabled from the exercise of his functions for the anathema deprived its subject of all official faculties it had the contingent result moreover that he who remained under excommunication for a year could be prosecuted for suspicion of heresy there was another provision which rendered it even more formidable as an antagonist in matters of faith and all pertaining directly or indirectly thereto its jurisdiction was exclusive in the extensive field of civil and criminal business of which it obtained cognizance through the immunities of its officials and in the frequent quarrels arising from questions of ceremony and precedence no court whether secular or spiritual had any power to inhibit any action which it might see fit to take by special papal favor however it had power to inhibit their action and thus to cripple them on the spot this extraordinary privilege with power to subdelegate appears to have been first granted in the commissions issued in fifteen o seven to jimenez and enguera as inquisitors-general respectively of castile and aragon and was repeated in those of luis mercader and pedro juan faul in fifteen thirteen for a considerable time this clause disappears from the commissions but towards the close of the century it again finds its place in a more detailed and absolute form in that granted to manrique de lara after which it continued in those of his successors to the end it confers the power of inhibiting all judges even of archiepiscopal dignity under pecuniary penalties and censures to be enforced by the invocation of the secular arm and of absolving them after they shall have submitted and obeyed this proclaimed to the world that the inquisition outranked all other authorities in church and state and the power was too often exercised for its existence to be ignored or forgotten this superiority found practical expression in the rule that in the innumerable conflicts of jurisdiction all secular and ecclesiastical judges must answer communications from inquisitors in the form of petition and not by letter if they replied to commands and commendations by letter they were to be fined and proceedings were to be commenced against them and their messengers and they were required to withdraw and erase from their records all such letters which were held to be disrespectful to the superiority of the holy office it was an inevitable inference from this that there was no direct appeal from whatever a tribunal might do except to the suprema which though it might in secret chide its subordinates for their excesses customarily upheld them before the world the sovereign it is true was the ultimate judge and in occasional cases he interposed his authority with more or less effect but the ordinary process was through a competencia or cumbrous procedure through which as we shall see the inquisition could wrangle for years and virtually in most cases deny all practical relief to the sufferers 
Another weapon of tremendous efficacy was the power of arrest, possessed at will by inquisitors during the greater portion of the career of the Inquisition. Even to gratify mere vindictiveness, by simply asserting that there was a matter of faith, the inquisitor could throw anyone into the secret prison. The civil magistrate might thus abuse his authority with little damage to the victim, but it was otherwise with the inquisition. In the insane estimate placed on limpieza de sangre, or purity of blood, the career of a man and his descendants was fatally narrowed by such a stain on his orthodoxy. It mattered little what was the outcome of the case. The fact of imprisonment was remembered and handed down through generations, while the fact of its being causeless was forgotten. In the latter period, when the Suprema supervised every act of the tribunals, the opportunities for this were greatly restricted, but during the more active times, the ill-will of an inquisitor could at any moment inflict this most serious injury, and the power was often recklessly abused in the perpetual conflicts with the secular authorities. The ability thus to destroy at a word the prospects in life of any man was a terrible weapon which goes far to explain the awe with which the inquisitor was regarded by the community. That the inquisitor should assume to be superior to all other dignitaries was the natural result of the powers thus concentrated in him. Paramo asserts that he is the individual of highest authority in his district, as he represents both Pope and King, and the Suprema, in a consulta addressed to Philip V, 1713, boasted that its jurisdiction was so superior that there was not a person in the kingdom exempt from it. The haughty supremacy which it affected is seen in instructions issued in 1578, that inquisitors, when the tribunal is sitting, are not to go forth to receive any one, save the king, the queen, or a royal prince, and are not, in any official capacity, to appear in receptions of prelates or other public assemblies. And this was virtually repeated in 1645, when they were told not to visit the viceroy or the archbishop, or accept their invitations, for such demonstrations were due only to the person of the king. Exception, however, was probably taken to this, for a carta acordada of March 17, 1648, lays down less stringent rules, and specifies for each tribunal, according to the varying customs of different places, the high officials whom the inquisitor is permitted to visit on induction into office, and on occasions of convalescence or congratulation. In the social hierarchy, the viceries and captains-general stood next to the king as representing, in their respective governments, the royal person. To outrank these exalted personages was not beyond inquisitorial ambition. In 1588, there was a great scandal in Lima, when the inquisitors claimed precedence over the Count of Villar, the viceroy of Peru, and carried their point by excommunicating him. But Philip II, in a cedula of March the 8th, 1589, took them severely to task for their arrogance, and added that the viceroy was equally to blame for yielding, as he represented the royal power. This lesson was ineffectual, and some years later another method was tried of asserting superiority. 
1596, the captain-general of Aragon complained to the king that, in the recent auto de fe, the inquisitors had refused to give him the title of Excellency. To this, Philip replied, February 6, 1597, that it was unreasonable for them thus to affect equality with his personal representative. They must either concede to him the title of Excellency, or themselves be treated as Vuesta Merced, in place of Muy Ilestres or Señoría, and therefore he could attend the next auto. This asserted superiority of the Inquisition was very galling to the bishops, who argued that the Holy Office had been founded only four hundred years before, as an aid to their jurisdiction, and they resented bitterly the efforts of the resolute upstarts to claim higher privileges and precedents. The Inquisition, however, was an organized whole, with sharp and unsparing methods of enforcing its claims, and protected in every way from assault, while the Episcopate was a scattered and unwieldy body, acting individually and, for the most part, powerless to defend the officials through whom it acted, from those who claimed that everything concerning themselves was a matter of faith of which they had exclusive cognizance. The serious conflicts over jurisdiction will be considered in a subsequent chapter. Here, we are concerned merely with the questions of etiquette and ceremonial. Seen through the perspective of the centuries, these quarrels, which were conducted with frantic eagerness, seem trivialities unworthy of record, but their significance was momentous to the parties concerned, as they involved superiority and inferiority. The Hundred Years' Quarrel over precedence in Rome, between the ambassadors of France and Spain, which was not settled until 1661 by the triumph of France, had a meaning beyond a mere question of ceremony. In Spain, these debates often filled the land with confusion. All parties were tenacious of what they conceived to be their rights, and were ready to explode in violence on the smallest provocation. The enormous mass of letters and papers concerning the seats and positions of the inquisitors and their officials at all public functions, whether seats should be chairs or benches, or whether they were to have canopies or cushions or carpets, shows that these were regarded as matters of the highest moment, giving rise to envenomed quarrels with the ecclesiastical and secular dignitaries, requiring for their settlement the interposition of the royal authority. The inquisitors were constantly arrogating to themselves external marks of superiority, and the others were disputing it with such a vehemence that elevated the most trivial affairs into matters of national importance, and the attention of the king and the highest ministers was diverted from affairs of state to pacify obscure quarrels in every corner of the land. It would be futile to enter into the details of these multitudinous squabbles, but one or two subjects in dispute may be mentioned to illustrate the ingenuity with which the Inquisition pushed its claims to superiority. Towards the middle of the seventeenth century, it demanded that, when there was an Episcopal letter or mandate to be published in the churches, and also an edict or letter of the Inquisition, the latter should have precedence in the reading. This was naturally regarded as an effort to show 
that the inquisitorial jurisdiction was superior to the episcopal and it led to frequent scandals in 1645 at valencia on passion sunday a secretary of the tribunal endeavored to read letters of the inquisition before one of the archbishops but by the latter's order the priest refused to give way whereupon the inquisitors arrested him the matter was carried up to the king who ordered the priest to be discharged in such wise that there should be no record of his prosecution and that his good fame should be restored soon after this in saragossa on a feast day in the cathedral a priest commenced to read an archiepiscopal letter but before he had finished more than a few lines a secretary of the inquisition mounted the other pulpit and began reading a letter of the inquisition the priest was so disturbed that he stopped whereupon the archbishop juan sebrian ordered his arrest but he pleaded his surprise and confusion and the archbishop relented in sixteen forty nine a more determined effort was made by the saragossa tribunal august fifteenth the parish priest of the cathedral read certain archiepiscopal letters at the accustomed time and was followed by the secretary of the inquisition with others of the inquisitors two days later the priest was summoned before the tribunal and was made to swear secrecy as to orders given to him the result showed what were his instructions for the next sunday having archiepiscopal letters to read he waited until the secretary read those of the inquisitors some days later similar secret orders were given to the priest of nuestra senora del pilar and when on october the eleventh he commenced reading an archiepiscopal letter an officer of the inquisition seized him by the arm and forced him to read first those of the tribunal archbishop cedrian addressed memorials to the king september the seventh and twenty first and october twelfth asking his protection to preserve the archiepiscopal jurisdiction the council of aragon presented a consulta supporting him on which the wearied monarch made an endorsement deploring the evil results of such conflicts and telling the council to write to the archbishop not to proceed to extremities but to seek some adjustment similar to that by which a short time before cardinal moscoso in toledo had caused an inquisitorial letter to be read on a different day to which the tribunal must be made to conform end of book two chapter two part one